So today, we are covering the book of Mark. And so what's happened is Pastor James has asked me uh, to cover Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 23. So I read through this a few times, and here's what I decided to do. Um, in the month of May, we are going to be finishing up our, our current life group session. And then over the summertime, we are going to go back to having, we're going to have a Bible study at Prosser Campus on Wednesday nights, which is what we've done in the past. And so for any of you who ever came to one of those, a lot of times we would do a verse-by-verse Bible study. We would pick a book, and we would go through it, and we would cover it, kind of similar to what we're doing now. The only difference was is we would really, we would take more time. We would choose less verses and maybe be able to dig in a little bit deeper. So what I decided to do with that, with this, this section of verses this morning, is really approach it the same way. I'm just going to take the verses and we're just going to look at what they're saying, what are they trying to what are they trying to explain to us and what they mean so we can have a better understanding. And that's really just how I'm going to approach it. So the first thing that I would like to do so we can see where we're going is read verses 1 through 23. And that's a lot of verses, but here we go. <laughs> One day some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law, and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked? Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. Then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So so let's take a moment. Let's just pray about this. Father, we just thank you for this morning and this word. 
Father God, we just pray that as we look at these verses, open up our understanding to help us to see what you want to say to us. What do do these verses mean? What do they mean to us? How do they apply to our lives? Father God, we give the Holy Spirit permission to challenge us, to speak to us, and to change us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So that was a lot of verses. So I have a quick summary of kind of a little breakdown of what just happened. Verses 1 through 5. The Pharisees criticized the disciples for not washing their hands. In 6 to 13, Jesus criticized the Pharisees for false worship. And then in 14 through 23, Jesus teaches on purity. So this is what the three basic sections of what were happening here. So here's what we can do. As we look at these verses, we're going to look at four questions that I've got. And we're going to answer these four questions as we, through these verses. The first question is this, what was the commandment of God? So he said they rejected the commandment of God for their own man-made tradition. So what was the commandment of God? Secondly, how did the Pharisees reject the commandment? Number three, what is purity? And number four, why is all of this important? Does it really apply to us? Is there anything in this that we really need to be paying attention to that's going to apply to our lives? So the first question I had is, what was the commandment of God? So in Mark 7, verse 9, it says this. And he said unto them, full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. That was King James. And then in the uh, New Living Translation, it says this. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. So he's saying, so basically, I, I love the way the, in the New Living Translation used the word sidestep. You know, it's kind of like the ball's coming your way, and you just kind of, you know, you just kind of step out of the way. That's what's happening. Everything is coming right at him, and you just take this little step, you sidestep, didn't touch me. And that's what they're doing. They're using man-made traditions just to step out of the way of what God had said. And so what was the commandment? And here's the answer. It it wasn't really any one specific commandment that he's referring to. He's really talking about the whole law. He's talking about all kinds of things. So when he says, when we first read it, he says, you've sidestepped the commandment. My first thought was, what was the commandment? But he's really just talking about all kinds of things in general. They have a general practice of sidestepping commandments. So it's not really one specific one to look at. And so the Pharisees' washing of hands that they were talking about, said your disciples didn't wash their hands. See, that wasn't God's law. That wasn't a commandment that they, were, that they were given to follow. That was a man-made tradition. So that wasn't the commandment they were sidestepping. And so basically, to kind of understand this, because I looked this up and I was trying to figure out where they get this from, and really what it was about is in the law, there were commands that were given to the priests who served in the temple. And there were laws about having to wash their hands before they served. So what ended up happening is over time, a lot of those things got applied to people in their everyday lives. And what they believe is, because this is so, we're going so far back, what's best believed was probably what happened was they were saying things, it's almost like a priesthood of the believer. They were kind of saying, well, aren't we, don't we all serve God? Don't we all serve God in everyday life? So they started you know, creating these, so when you're just like, well, they wash their hands in temple, we should probably wash our hands too. And it really wasn't, they had, didn't have bad motives when it first started, because it's kind of an honorable, we're going we're to honor God with this, but then it became a rule, it became a tradition. And so that's where that came from. So the first question, we're done. That was really easy, wasn't it? Yep. Second question, <laughs> how did the Pharisees reject the commandment? So the first thing I want to say before we really look at that, I want to do a little bit of a history that is going to help us understand this, that who were the Pharisees? 
So we read this all the time. And as Jesus is going around, he's got Pharisees he encounters. He he encounters Sadducees. And he he encounters scribes. And we see these all throughout the gospel. So what I wanted to do is just have us a better understanding of what a Pharisee was. And then we'll have a really good understanding of where they're coming from. So interestingly, the word for Pharisees is separated ones. That kind of remind you of anything? In the Greek, the word for church is ekklesia, and it means called out ones. So the, the Pharisees were the separated ones. So basically, the Pharisees had a strong zeal for the law and making sure that every part of the law of Moses was obeyed. Because what happened was, see, the Israelites had really turned away from God. They had turned away from the things that God had given them, and they were taken captive to Babylon. Basically, and the prophets told them, you, all of Israel, all of this is being laid to waste because you've rejected me. You're not following my commands. You are not serving me. You're serving other gods. And so the Pharisees said, man, we can't let this happen again. We've got to go back. What were those commands? What are we supposed to be doing? And so they wanted to make sure that Israel didn't backslide again. So that was the history of the Pharisees. And so that was honorable. There was nothing wrong. Because when you look back at the Gospels, it's so easy to say, man, those Pharisees, they were always causing trouble. They were really screwed up. Man, those Sadducees. You know, you look at that. But when they started, they just wanted, they just wanted to serve God. That's all it was. They just wanted to make sure that people were serving God. And so, basically, I just kind of threw this out, that Hellenism was rapidly spreading all throughout the empire. People were starting to serve all kinds of pagan gods and all kinds of other religions, and they were trying to work against that. So, where did all of this go wrong? Basically, the Pharisees became so concerned with obeying every detail of the law that they forgot God's original intention for giving the law. See, it became all about the washing of the hands as opposed to why are we washing our hands? You see what I'm saying? That the whole life became about rituals and legalism and following the rules more than about why did God even care in the first place to tell us that these things. And so that's where it all started to go downhill. The emphasis on their outward show and ceremony led to pride, particularly because whenever you have a set of rules, there's always someone who's better at following the rules than someone else. So what do you do? If you're really good at following the rules, you look down at the other. He's not very good at this. And then if you're not good at it, then you're condemned and you feel like trash all the time. See, that's what the legalism, that's what rules bring. And so that's what was happening with them. And that's going to give you a really good understanding as you start looking at the Pharisees and the Gospels to understand where they were coming from. So basically, the Pharisees began condemning those who didn't follow the rules as well. And finally, I love this phrase, instead of being separated from sin, they became separated from people. They, instead of being separated from sin, they became separated from people because they couldn't be unclean. They couldn't be dirty. You see what I'm saying? And so, and, and it's interesting, um, I don't want to admit <clears throat> that I'm almost 30 years old now because I'm really, because I'm getting old. But you know, I remember different, <laughs> yeah, anyway, that's a joke, obviously. But I've lived through different eras of church life and I've always found it how interesting things have changed. But there was a time, and some people still struggle with this, that you, you, Christians, you don't hang out with unbelievers because they're sinners. 
So this very attitude still happens today. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we're looking at these Pharisees and the things that were going on. All these things that they were guilty of, can we find that today still happening? So again, my question was, how did the Pharisees reject the commandment? And my answer is this. They placed a higher importance on man-made rules than God's word. That's what Jesus said pretty much straight up. So as we look back at those verses in Mark 5 through 9, this is what it said. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your old tradition. So this is how. They basically, they created their own set of rules. That was more important than the Bible said. As it goes on in verse 10, it says, for instance... Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. And I know the teenagers are in youth group right now, but I'll just say this, as every survivor who has made it to adulthood, you're probably glad these verses don't apply, they don't follow these verses anymore, right? (laughs) That's that's, that's a pretty tough verse, I'm not going to lie. But it says, but you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents, and so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among any others. So basically what's happening is, so you might have a situation, your parents, you know, whatever, maybe they just lost their job, maybe they're elderly, maybe they're sick, but whatever's happened, for some reason, your parents are having trouble making it. And you've got money. You could help them. There's something that you could do to help them. And you say, man, you know what? I would love to, but I'm going to take that money that could have helped you, and I'm actually going to give it as an offering to church because, you know, for their missions program or something like that. And, you know, it's interesting because on one hand, that sounds half spiritual, right? It doesn't really, maybe it doesn't show, it's not the best, but it's halfway spiritual. I mean, at least they're not, you know, giving it to something ridiculous. They're actually, they're trying to give it to the church. But here's my opinion. This is not a fact. Uh, This is my opinion. My opinion is, is they weren't, they weren't giving this money to the church as a result of their love for God. I don't think that's what they were doing. I don't think that's why. And I've got a couple of verses that I'm going to use to kind of to give my, to reinforce my opinion here. <laughs> it says in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, this is Jesus talking. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. For you will lose the reward from your father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. And in Matthew 23, 5, he was talking about the Pharisees, and he said, Jesus says this, everything they do is for show. So 
obviously this was happening. Jesus wouldn't have just made this up. He just wouldn't have created some crazy fantasy to make a point. So he was referring to something that was happening all the time that the people knew about. And what was happening was, is when the Pharisees were giving gifts to the, to the, uh, to the church, the temple, the synagogue, however you want to say it, basically they were making a big deal of it. They didn't just, you know, secretly kind of drop it into the bucket as it came by. They made sure that everybody knew what they were giving. They made sure that everybody knew they were giving a whole lot of money. And so that's what I'm seeing in this is that, see, it's one thing to say, well, I'm giving some money to the church. Sorry, mom and dad, I can't help you. But understand they were, they wanted that money to give to the church so everybody could see how big of a giver they were. That, this was a big part of it. And so basically, see what I see in this, see, it was all for show. It was all for their reputation. It was all so they could look important. That's what, this was, that's what was going on in their society, is they were putting on a big show so they could be somebody big. That gave them power. That gave them reputation. That gave them importance. That gave them a, a say in things. You see what I'm saying? Because the Pharisees, interestingly enough, they, te- they weren't priests. A lot of the Pharisees actually were not born into religious leader families. The majority of them were actually middle class. They were often tradesmen. They, they, were, they were skilled tradesmen is what a lot of them were. And it was, kind of, it was kind of a society, and you had to prove yourself worthy to be accepted into them. See what I'm saying? You had to prove that you could follow the rules, and they would take you into the Pharisees. So that's who the Pharisees were. So this is all like a clique. This is a little power click. And so this is what they're doing with their offerings as they're giving them. So we kind of see a different picture. You see what I'm saying? They're not just saying, oh, man, I'm so concerned about those kids in India. I've got to give my money so they can get their palate fixed. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, I want them to blow, get all the trumpets. I want there to be a parade. I want them to see how big and how important I am as I give this money. And that's what they were having. So they were ignoring the commands of God so they could be important. Amen? That never happens here. That never happens here. Seriously, it really doesn't. For anyone who's listening on the podcast, I'm not being sarcastic. It really never happens here. But I found this on a website. It was actually, it was an excerpt from a uh, book uh, that was very, very interesting. We're just going to fly through this real quick. Back as the Pharisaical law, I just want to say the Pharisees had developed a system that had 613 laws. So this is in addition to the Old Testament. In addition to everything that God had said, they came up with 613 laws. They had 365 negative commands and 248 positive laws. And the list I found here was that it contained 10 tragic flaws. And here's the tragic flaws. Number one, new laws continually needed to be invented for new situations. So as society changed and different things happened, you kept having to come up with new laws to fix it. Number two, accountability to God is replaced by accountability to men. Number three, it reduces a person's ability to personally discern. You're just a drone, you're just following the rules. Number four, it creates a judgmental spirit. Number five, the Pharisees confused personal preferences with divine law. Now, that's, that's a tough one right there. It, it produces inconsistencies. It created a false standard of righteousness. It became a burden to the Jews. It was strictly external. And lastly, it was, it was rejected by Christ. So those are just 10 flaws that came through that. And I was thinking through that list. 
And I was thinking about the few years that I've lived on this earth and the things that I've seen that have happened in church. And I tell you, it's funny. So uh, if you go several generations back in my family, they were apostolic Pentecostal preachers in the very beginning of the Pentecostal movement. And it's one of those things I wish I had known that, see, because I didn't, I didn't go to church growing up. I didn't know anything about it. My great-grandmother was still alive when I was, like, in real middle school, and I wish that I could go back to her and say, oh, my gosh, what was it like to be at the beginning of the Pentecostal movement and to be a preacher? And you and your husband were preachers in all this, but I never knew that I didn't appreciate anything about it because we didn't go to church. So how was it that I had generations of Pentecostal preachers and I didn't go to church at all? It was because my grandfather had decided that no one was going to church ever again. Why did my grandfather decide that no one was going to church ever again? Because in the early days of Pentecostals kept making up all these rules. They kept making up all these laws. And so, for instance, one of them was caffeine. So one day caffeine is a sin. One day caffeine is not a sin. And he was like, hold on now. How can it be a sin today, yesterday and not a sin today? And he said, y'all are just making it all up. He had this list of things that they just kept changing what was and was not a sin. And he just said, this is, this is, this is not God. This isn't real. This is just something y'all are just creating. And so he said, we are never going to church. And so I didn't go to church until right after I graduated high school because some guy that worked at a gas station who looked just like Kevin Bacon from Footloose and played guitar in the middle of the night I'd stop and talk to him, and he witnessed to me, and he invited me to youth group, and I ended up getting saved and kind of coming back around. But this was why. And I started thinking about some other things. Uh, Here's some things that in the not-so-distant past you could not do if you were a good Christian. A good Christian. Let me reinforce that. Good Christian. A man could not have long hair. A man. Now, this is going to be hard to believe, but back in the 90s, which I was barely alive for, uh, you know... You know, you had Nirvana, you had the whole grunge thing going on. Man, I had the shaved hair on the sides, the long swoopy thing, and all that kind of stuff. It, it worked. It really worked. And, and man, I caught so much flack for that. And you look back, it's such, it's, it's dumb now because it's really not that big of a deal. But I really caught a lot of flack because I was a youth pastor. I was in ministry. You can, how can you dress like that? I mean, they want, people still wanted me wearing suits. I'm like, I'm a youth pastor. I'm not going to wear a three-piece suit and a tie. But that was people's attitude back then. Um, here's another one that men could not do. A man could not have an earring. Again, hard to believe unless you look really close. I caught a lot of flack for having an earring. Yeah. Whatever. And, and, it, and I don't want to, I'm not bitter. Trust me, I'm not bitter. But you know, I caught so much flack for all that stuff. And the things that people do today, I'm like, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. Look at you people. I mean, you know, I, I couldn't do any of that stuff. That's uh, just not. Now, see, I don't have enough hair. If you're on the podcast, see, I don't have enough hair to grow it out anymore. It stinks. Another one that you couldn't do is tattoos. Christians could not have tattoos. And now, I almost, I almost did a slideshow for this, but man, if you look at every hip and cool praise and worship leader, tattoos all up and down their body. You know, a few years ago, um, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't think it's embarrassing, but Brian, who filled in for the drums last week, his brother is an amazing guitar player. And so uh, he got a job playing for, filling in for a Christian rock band. And he went out of state, and the first thing they did is look at him and said, no, you got to go down to the tattoo parlor. Because they had, we, they had an image they had to fit. 
and he didn't, have, he didn't fit the image. And it was just like, and again, you're thinking, wow, times have changed. I'm just saying. Uh, it's just different. Here's a funny one going back a little further, but probably back in the 50s and 60s, a preacher could not have a beard. See, Satan had beards. This is the logic. I'm telling you the truth. See, Satan had a beard, in particular, a goatee. You for sure, Rick, I'm sorry. Just be glad you're living in this day and age and not in the 50s. But, but I'm being dead serious. Preachers couldn't have beards because it just, you know, a shady person had a beard. I'm telling you, this is, this is the literal logic that was going behind it. And, of course, I'll just throw out one last one, body piercings. Uh, there's all kinds of variety on those that we won't get into. But, obviously, if you couldn't have an earring, you, uh, you, know, you couldn't have other things pierced also. But this is what's different. These things are acceptable now. And so here's what I want to say. So this is exactly the same. So you have Christians who 10, 15 years ago, oh, no, this is a sin, this is a sin, this is a sin. And now every preacher who gets paraded out on stage looks this way. When 20 years ago, they wouldn't have been allowed at all. So was God giving us commands about these things? Or was man giving us commands about these things? That's, that's, that's what we're looking at here. And so as we look at the Pharisees, they were judgmental because there were man-made laws that man had to follow. So here's what we're going to do real quick. I got to thinking about this. I was like, well, that's what's going on with the Pharisees. So I, I had a theory, and I walked it out, and it turned out to be true. I used a concordance, and if you don't know what a concordance is, in a, in a biblical concordance, you basically can look up any word, and it tells you every place it appears in the Bible. So I looked up every use of the word Pharisee in the four Gospels. And I said, I've got a theory that every single time I see a story with the Pharisee, if I think that these lenses... I'm going to understand that story better. And it, it, it worked every single time. I, real, I saw some things in it. So we're just going to fly through a couple of those. And so notice that the trend in all of these, it, there's a trend towards the Pharisees being judgmental and condemning other people. So in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 12, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. See, this was the attitude that Jesus was dealing with as he was ministering to them. Uh, the next one was the woman with the jar of perfume says, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet as she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now imagine we're sitting in a worship service and the Holy Spirit just falls on some person. And they just, they're, they're right there like, oh my, I need Jesus now. I need Jesus. I've got to repent. I've got to turn for my life. And God is just breaking them down. And this is what the, the ushers say. Just kidding, ushers. When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, well, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. I mean, think about it. This woman has, is repenting of her entire life. 
And all they can say is, she's a sinner. Why is she here? Of course she's a sinner. That's why she's breaking down. But there was no compassion. All they understood how to do was judge other people and condemn them for it. And so um, the next one I have is very brief. In Luke chapter 14, I just put um, that they didn't like that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. They're really upset. They say, hey, this is a Sabbath. We're not supposed to work today. You can't heal somebody today. But again, there was no love. There was no compassion in what they were saying. So my third question is this. What is purity? Because Jesus made a big deal about this. What is purity? All these things that the Pharisees were doing was not purity. So what is it? In verse 14, this is what Jesus had said. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. And then in 17, then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. So he's making a very clear point because they were so caught up on that. So I just want to say this because even in this present day and age, I hear this all the time. Oh, you shouldn't eat that. Don't you know your body's a temple of God? That's junk food. Don't eat that. Your body's a temple. People still say that. And so how about, and uh, this is going to be a tough one here. People use it all the time for cigarettes. Oh, you shouldn't smoke. Your body's a temple of God. Well, I'm sorry. According to this, what you take in your mouth doesn't defile you. Now, I will say this. Smoking is bad for your health. You still probably shouldn't do it. But that's not the right logic. That's not the right reasoning for that is all I'm saying. Uh, I got some wide eyes on that one. Yeah, sorry. That's not, that's not the right reasoning for that one. Um, another one that I have is um, well, junk food and cigarettes. They don't defile you. And so, um, so here's the thing. People would say, isn't our body the temple of God? And it is a temple of God. So let's look at that scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20. It says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you at a high price, so you must honor God with your body. So yes, but let's back up a few verses and see what Paul said just before this. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sins against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Ye have of God, and you are not of your own. And then in 6.13, it it says this, You say that food is made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. The Lord cares about our bodies. So what he's teaching here, if you look at the entire chapter, he's saying, okay, if you eat that, you're not defiling your body. But if you commit fornication... Yes, you are defiling your body. He's making it very clear that sexual immorality is what defiles your temple. Every time he's saying your body's a temple, don't you know your body's a temple? He he backs that up by talking about sexual sin. And he very clearly said that that your food you put in your mouth does not 
is not a, you know, defiling your body because it's the temple. You see what I'm saying? But you hear this all the time. And it's like, it's just something that people are always talking about. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Your body is a temple of God. And it is a temple of God. And I think we should take care of our bodies. But you can't, you can't twist the scripture and use it for something it's not saying. Paul is clearly saying that it's sexual sin that is defiling the body. You are joining, you know, in one verse says you're, you're joining your body to a prostitute. Don't you know your body is the temple of God? See, this is what he keeps talking about. This is what he's making it very, very clear. So what does defile the body? And so the word defile, it actually means to ceremonially defile, like a ceremony. Basically, by treating, some, treating what is sacred as treating it as it's common and ordinary. Taking something that is sacred and holy and treating it like it's, like it's just an ordinary, everyday thing. And I thought that was such an interesting way to look at the word defile, because there's all this word, they're using so much about the word defile. When he says you're defiling yourself, he's basically saying, don't you know that you're a special servant of God? You're just treating yourself like you're nothing. You're treating yourself like you're ordinary. You're basically, the idea was about special, you know, for instance, they were special utensils and things that they would use in the temple, like, you know, like, you know, the serving things and the bowls and things like that. There were certain things that had to be used specifically for the worship of God. You didn't take it home and make macaroni and cheese in it. You see what I'm saying? Because that was common use. These things were created for a special use, for a sacred use. This is what God, this is what Jesus is communicating to us here. You are made for a special use, but don't you realize by defiling yourself, you're just making yourself common like you're just nothing, that you're not important? This is the message that's being conveyed to us. So as you look back in verse 20, this is what he had said. He says, then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within. They are what defile you. And in 2 Timothy 2.21 says, if you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the master to use you at every good work. See, this is what he's trying to convey. He says, if you keep yourself pure, you'll be a special utensil. Uh, your life will be clean. You'll be for honorable use. God will be able to use you. But see, but those things that come from within, they're our attitude. They're the sin that's within us. You see what I'm saying? So the reason he's saying the words that come out of our mouth defile us because that's expressing our sinful thoughts and the things that are going on within us. You know, you accidentally touch a dead raccoon on the side of the road, you're not defiled, which is what the Jews would have believed. But he says, man, when, you, when you're cursing people, you're trash-talking people, when you're hateful, when you have all these things that are going on, you are defiled because you were a special instrument for my use, and now you're, you're, you're blowing it. And what we're trying to see here is the motivation, really, for staying pure. Our motivation for staying pure is so God can use us as a special tool. I mean, we have to decide what is it that we want out of life. Do you want to be a really special tool that he can use for his service? Do you want to be a kind of special tool that he can kind of use sometimes? Or do you just want to blow everything? 
just blow our whole life, and God had this whole dream for you. He had all these things that we could have done, but we decided it'd be better to be mad at people or to be rude to people or all these different things, and so we blew it. I talked about this in life group, but, um, and I don't feel like I explained this well. I'm going to try and explain it again. Um, but I was taught by certain people in my family, it's just, they're just rude to people. You, you criticize. See, everyone's stupid. Everyone else is dumb. That's the way I was brought up to be. And every, you know, everybody makes mistakes sometimes. Everybody says something that afterwards you're like, oh, I guess that was kind of dumb. Everybody does that. But, well, you just jumped on it. And so you immediately in every room, if you ever saw the Jason Bourne movie, see, Jason Bourne could walk into a movie, and he knew how to kill every person. He knew every exit, and he knew everything to do. Well, my family walked into a room, you immediately identified all the dumb people and all the dumb things they were doing. I'm just telling you, it's just the way it is. And so that's something that I had to overcome in my life. And so I joke about it, for instance, because I, I, I see people at the gym as a perfect example. People that I don't know, I don't know anything about these people, they're just random people that I see. But because of the way that I was trained, man, some of them just get on my nerves. They do. But I know it's the way I was trained. There's nothing wrong with that person. It's just, they're just different, okay? So what I decided to do, the way I handle it is, the more a person aggravates me, the more I feel that inside, the nicer I am to them. And it might just be giving, just, you know, when you walk about, hey, how's it going today? Just, that's it. Just smiling at them. Hey, what's up, man? You know, just do anything, just be nice. And so what's ended up happening over time is I've gotten to know a lot of these people. We talk all the time. We know things about each other. We have conversations. And what I came to realize is that I think every single one of them, they're just super nice people. They're great people. They may not all be Christians. They may not all be perfect, but they're all, you know, they're just, they're just good everyday people. Not what I was taught to see them as. Um, and so here's the thing. If I weren't walked in my old ways, I would never be able to minister to a single one of them because I'd be a jerk to every single one of them. I'd be sarcastic to every single one of them. I'd be rude to every single one of them. But what I do is every single person I see, I go, you know, one day that's somebody I'm going to be able to minister to. One day I'm going to be able to invite that person to church. One day I'm going to be able to pray for that person. And so I've got, and I, you know, and something I've done for years, I've always said this, since I, you know, I lead worship and I'm up front a lot, is if that person ever walked into a church that I was at, would they turn around and walk out or would they come and sit down? That's what I think about every single person I encounter. Because when you think that way, you've really got to watch yourself. And I've done this to basically to, to change the way that I was trained to be. And so as we, we're getting a little closer to the end here, I left out one famous story of a Pharisee that I want to look at real quick. And this is Nicodemus. We've all heard about Nicodemus. In John 3, he came to Jesus at night. And so they had this whole conversation. You know, Nicodemus was famous for saying, well, how can a man be born again? What, am I supposed to climb back in the womb and do it all over again? How am I supposed to be born again? And so what was, every, we all know Jesus' famous response. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everybody knows that. But here's what I was thinking. So if if the Pharisees were famous for judging and condemning people, wouldn't we see that in this story? And so I read a little further. And so here, and remember that all Pharisees struggled with being judgmental and condemning. So look at the verses that followed this. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, 
but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone believes in him. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than light for their actions were evil. See, Jesus was famous for meeting a person where they were. Whatever that person's situation was, he found a way to minister and speak to them that reflected who they were and where they were. So Jesus is talking to this man whose whose entire life is based on rules, judging, and condemning. And he said, yeah, there is a judgment, but you totally missed it. The real judgment is going to be whoever rejects the Messiah. Yeah, that's what he's trying to bring. He's trying to bring him around to this point. He said, you see what I'm saying? He's telling him his whole thinking, everything is wrong. And so um, why is all of this important to us? We're running short on time. Let me go ahead and wrap this up. In John 3, 20 through 21, it said this, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see they are doing what God wants. And that last phrase is what we're going to look at. Those who do what is right come to the light so others can see they are doing what God wants. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says, For you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Then we're talking about purity. So if we back those verses up, we get Peter's two steps to this. Number one was, so get rid of all evil behavior, be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. That was his first one. Get the sin out of your life. Get rid of your bad character. Number two, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. So this is is the purity. My question is, why why does this whole conversation of purity, everything that we're looking at, why does it matter? Because we're chosen, we're a royal priesthood, we're a chosen generation. See, God has chosen us to go out and bring the gospel to the world. So Peter says, yes, you are. So get rid of your evil behavior. Just get rid of it. Get rid of your bad attitude. Get rid of all those things so you can minister to other people. And the second thing was, you know, you crave spiritual milk. You can grow into a full experience of salvation. Have spiritual maturity. Have something to offer. Don't just not be rude, but have something in in you to give people. And so in Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. This is who we are. This is why he's concerned about our purity. Our whole mission as a Christian is to go out and make disciples, is to win the loss. That is our whole reason for being. That's the reason for the church. So if we're out there with a bad attitude, if we're being rude, if we're being mean to people, we will never be able to do that. This is the real point for purity. Not so we can be better than someone else, not so we can judge, not so we can condemn them because they're sinners and we used to be sinners, but we're not sinners anymore. It's just all so we can love on people. The whole reason we're getting the junk out of the way so we can love on people. I have a couple more, two more verses. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I really thought that was interesting. He's like, basically, don't give offense to the Jews. Don't, give, don't offend the religious people. Don't offend the Gentiles. So people just have nothing to do with church whatsoever. And don't insult, don't, and then the church of God, actual Christians. Live your life that you don't offend any of those people. I, too, try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others. Why? So that many may be saved. That's his whole motivation. Uh, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So Jesus is concerned about our purity. God is concerned about our purity. And like we said, it's all about our, the motivation is our love for others not to be better, not to be judgmental, not to be elite, but say, God, is there anything, is there something that I'm doing? Is there something about my life that I can't minister to this person? I can't witness to this person because I've just blown it. Because maybe I've just got a general way of blowing it because of things that I do. And it's just asking God just to speak to you and say, God, I wanna make other people more important than myself. So I'm going to need you to help me because the problem is sometimes we do things and we're oblivious. We just don't know we're doing it. But sometimes if you're like me and you've got deeply ingrained behavior patterns, it's not easy just to say, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. And so, I mean, there are some things that we really struggle with because we would love to change those things, but we can't. Whether, whether it's like say it's in our mind whether it's a chemical addiction, whether it's all kinds of things. Sometimes we try and we try, but we just can't seem to break the pattern. And so this is what I want us to do tonight, to this morning. Uh, I didn't preach that long. Uh, basically, <laughs> I just want us to take a second and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us and say, God, is there something in my life that I need to change so I can be a better witness and a better minister to other people. And God, if that's true, can you please help me? And we have to take personal responsibility and do everything we physically can to try and make those changes. But sometimes we need something more than that. And so we're going to ask God, say, God, I need you to move in my life. I need you to break this in me. I need you to show me a better way. I need you to give me the ability to change. So what I'd like to do is um, if, the, uh, uh, if the prayer counselors, if anyone, uh, if there's any prayer counselors would like to come up front. And I just want to, just in case, if, if there's anyone you feel like you need, we're going to pray for everyone. But if you feel like you need, you would really like to have somebody pray with you one-on-one, I would like to provide that opportunity if you would like to be able to speak to somebody and have somebody pray with you about that. So let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Father God, this morning, Lord God, I just pray you just help us just to be open and honest with ourselves. Father God, we ask the Holy Spirit right now just to speak to us. Is there something in us that needs to change? Is there something in us that needs to end? Is there something in us that needs to grow, Lord God, to help us become a better minister for you?
to be able to better help us to show love and compassion and witness to those around us. Father God, if there's something in our life, Father God, I pray you just clarify it right now and help us to know that and understand that. And Father God, right now we give these things to you. We say, God, give us wisdom on how to make changes in our lives. Give us strength, Father God, to be able to turn against this. And Father God, and even more than that, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do something miraculous. Father God, for the things that we think are impossible, for the things that we think can never happen, we know that you can do miracles. We know that you can do any of this. And Father God, this morning, we ask you to do miracles. We ask you to break chemical addictions. Father God, we ask you to break behavior patterns, way, attitudes, ways of thinking, Father God, things that have always been there. Father God, we just ask you to break those things. Father God, we just thank you for helping us to become that special chosen vessel, that vessel for honor, that's that vessel that has a special service. Father God, show us every day of our life how we have that you've chosen us for those things. Show us our, show us our special past. Show us the things that you have for us to do. Show us the, the honor that you've, just, that you've chosen for us. And Father God, I know that as we see those things, that we're going to choose those over this, the mundane, Father God. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. So as we dismiss, what I would like to do, we are dismissed for the service. But if you need special prayer, if you, just, if you'd like, if you need somebody to pray with you, somebody that you would like to talk to about any of this, I said we just would like to invite you just to come up and just to have that time.